Right. Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the Middle East Centre at the London School of Economics. And more importantly, welcome uh, to the memorial honouring the late Falak Jabbar and his not notable contribution not only to the study of Iraq but also to Iraqi politics. And I think, if you're like me, to everyone in this room, he touched uh, intellectually, uh, personally, and politically. Now, this event also marks the launch of this paper, From Identity Politics to Issue Politics, the Iraqi Protest Movement, which some of you, I know, will remember he gave the talk that this paper is uh, based on at the Middle East Center here uh, in July 2016, then a year later submitted it for publication and we brought it out very sadly, posthumously. So what we've done today uh, as a way, as a vehicle for remembering Falak is gathering together three of his old friends and colleagues and we have five interventions. Now the first, Renad, will uh, read a tribute written by his wife, Fatima Al-Mossen, uh, and then Rad, Renad himself next will discuss uh, the paper, uh, From Identity Politics to Issue Politics. Um, Charles Tripp will then broaden out the focus of the discussion to look at Fala's contribution to the study of Iraq more generally, and then Denise will discuss Fala's work and then on the wider Middle East and Iraq. Um, and we'll then complete the kind of formal process of the evening with a short film made by Rabal in the Middle East Centre. So let me just, uh, our speakers probably need no introduction, but let me introduce them anyway. Uh, Renad Mansour is a research fellow at the Middle East Centre and M Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. His research explores the situation in Iraq. Uh, and its transition and the dilemmas of state building. I suppose more importantly for tonight, he worked with Falak both in Beirut and in Iraq and has co-written a number of papers with him, including uh, my favorite at the moment, Maliki and the rest, The Crisis Within a Crisis, published in 2012. Charles Tripp, apart from being my own PhD supervisor, so I better behave myself while he's talking, uh, is the, politics, uh, the professor of politics with emeritus uh, with reference to the Middle East at the School of Oriental and African Studies. His research interests w range broadly across the Middle East, but um, I think most apposite to tonight, uh, he published uh, a widely read and very influential book, The History of Iraq, uh, by Cambridge University Press, first published in 2002, very good timing, and then republished a lot since. And then there's two other big books, Islam and the Moral Economy, The Challenge of Capitalism, and most recently in 2013, The Power, uh, the Power on the People, Paths of Resistance in the Middle East. Denise Candiotti is the Emeritus Professor of Development Studies at SOAS as well. Her research focuses on the fields of gender relations and developmental politics in the Middle East, specifically Turkey. Um, she's an old friend of Falas uh, through the Middle East uh, Center, Middle East uh, Studies Group that um, uh, Sami Zubeda runs and has published a number of books including Concubine Sisters and Citizens, Identities and Social Transformation, Fragments of Culture, The Everyday of Modern Turkey, Gender, Gendering the Middle East, and Women, Islam and the State. So I think we're, we've got a, a, a great group of people um, to honor and contribute to us remembering Falak Jabbar. And then as you'll know at the front 
there are a series of uh, tributes and memorial pieces written by Kawa, uh, Zuhair, Renad, Charles, and Sami. So they're on our website, but they're also at the front if you haven't picked them up. Now, I just would range across the work that Falak uh, published in, uh, in English um, uh, that, uh, that will be touched on tonight and uh, that um, uh, contributed to both an, an understanding of the Middle East and Iraq. The first is the first book that I came across, certainly, that he'd written that came from a, a workshop held at uh, SOAS's post-Marxism and the Middle East in 1977. Then we have a, a Tribes and Power, Nationalism and Ethnicity in the Middle East in 2002. Ayatollahs, Sufis and Ideologues, State Religion and so Social Movements in Iraq, also in 2002. And I think his magisterial book, the Shiite movement of Iraq that came out of the thesis, the PhD thesis he did with Sami Zubaydah at Birkbeck, published in 2003, and then Kurds, Nationalism and Politics, published in 2006. So what we'll do is uh, start with uh, Renad, move through the other two, the video, and then we can all raise a glass to his memory uh, at the end of the evening. Thank you very much. Renad. Thank you, Toby. Uh, and thanks everybody for coming. Uh, as Toby said, as Toby mentioned, I'll begin by reciting a, a piece that Faleh's wife, Fatima, wrote. Um, unfortunately, she's unable. Unfortunately, she's unable to make it here. She's in Beirut at the moment, but she's asked for this to be sort of recited uh, at this event. So the title of the piece is Faleh Abdul Jabbar: An Incomplete Journey. Following my illness, I had written my memoirs dedicated to Faleh Abdul-Jabbar under the title An Incomplete Journey. I remember, I remember him asking me, why incomplete? I was certain he knew what I meant. He did not want my life journey to arrive prematurely at its destination, but I never thought that his own would be cut short. A lifetime I had with Faleh, and I could not be choosy. Grieving over his losses, blocking all words, big and small. Faleh was not one person as such. He was mirrors of multiplying personalities. Inasmuch as those mirrors that had encircled me were exhausting, they offered me an open horizon to rich, vital, and fulfilling experiences. All of Faleh's struggles and insanities would begin and end in his deadly combat with time, that beast that he had tried to take by the horn. Faleh was a man in a hurry, a man running against the clock. You might say that Faleh had even decided the timing of his own death. He took his life by the scruff of the neck. He was fearless in the face of illness. I guess he remained like that until his last moment. What he feared most was to watch his last days pass as a frail old man staring into nothingness. It, it would sound pointless to say that Faleh had made a remarkable contribution to Iraqi and Arab culture. I am in a state of befuddlement as the personal loss supersedes any reminiscence of good times. Faleh tricked me into believing he would not die. On many occasions, I, premonitorily saw, I, I saw premonitory signs when he suddenly did not feel well, but he would always emerge from such health scares as if the warnings did not concern him. Many times he almost died, but he would char characteristically take it in his stride to start a new project, if not several at the same time. Faleh broke free from his body, but his brain remained active to the very last moment. He had the most precious value in human existence, namely ceaseless thinking of life's phenomena and scientific curiosity. He was helped by a complex mathematical mind with ramified interests ranging from sociology, history, philosophy, and physics to cinema, football, and chess. 
Such diversity of interest would be daunting to many others, but his ability to concentrate, compress, distill, and sum up had helped him channel his intellectual power uh, at his desk. I know of no other writer who would spend so much time in research and writing as Faleh. He was a teacher whose epistemological generosity extended to all, big and small. He was a remarkable lecturer who always had time to help his young students with questions they found too difficult. Many of them told me that they would remain in his debt for scholarly support and guidance. Faleh hated morning rituals and rites. He knew that what would remain was not the words dictated by the moment of bereavement, but that those that represent his legacy and contribution as a mortal. Death complements the act of freedom. It is the, other fa- it, it, it is the other face of people's physical existence. But to those engaged in intellectual activity, life is a bigger world than their personal existence. Theirs is an endeavor to reveal the real meaning of life itself. Although Faleh had a special interest in Marx and strongly believed that theory would remain just without praxis, he had a nihilistic streak that was indifferent towards his body. He was also continually concerned about the meaninglessness and senselessness of existence. He would dispel this anxiety by obsession with work, achievement, and taking possession of a world he was, he was afraid would slip from him. We both were in a race with time as we slept and awoke, in health and in illness. Our life together was not uninterrupted happiness, but our differences were a major factor in enriching the relationship, which we both were aware of our need for it to continue. At the end of the day, I find myself owing Faleh many a happy moment, including the happiness we both found in cultural life, books, travels, movies, friendships. Especially vivid is the memory of our open discussions on many subjects we were mutually interested in. Faleh was a brilliant reader of philosophy in various schools of thought. His erudition had helped me clarify many complex and vague problems. I knew I had to oppose him in order to exercise my mind and acquire new knowledge. We really enjoyed our, both our differences and mutual interests. We would exchange positions in the struggles with ourselves and attempts to understand more. We would argue, disagree, and turn our backs to each other only to get back together as if nothing had happened. Loss makes us move in reverse in the hope of gathering those scattered fragments of our past. Death is stronger than any conception we have of it and the future. The idea of losing Faleh has brought me closer to the real meaning of the end in a nebulous eternity. Although I had a near-death experience that is still lurking in my body, the difference is my previous awareness that he was always by my side. From the tone of his voice, I would realize that I was capable of making it through and survive with minimal losses. Was I wrong? Maybe. After all, there's a fine line between the beginning and the end without us knowing when we will reach the end of the line. That's from Fatima al-Muhsan. Yes. And also, uh, there are copies of it um, in the back or the front. By the door. By the door. Excellent. Thank you, Renat. That's very kind to read that out. Now, tell us about this publication and where it came from and what drove it. So... This publication uh, took years in the, in the making, as some of the professors and, and, and researchers are here with us today, like Dr. Saad and others. This has been really Faleh's baby, his brainchild, since the protest movement erupted in the summer of 2015. Um, it's research that began then, and only in 2018 it's being published in English, but it's a really, I think, seminal piece of work, um, and one that he wanted to be part of his legacy. I think if he had to choose the, a topic that would be his last topic, I think activism and rebuilding Iraq from the bottom up would be that topic, as someone who spent not too much time with him, but enough time to know... Um, 
his morals and principles. So, as I said, this piece looks at the idea of what happened in 2015 and continues to happen today. It's based on the sociological profiles and research of over 3,000 respondents, surveys around seven cities in Iraq, and many, uh, and it's informed by many Iraqi researchers. Just to name a few, uh, Dr. Saad is here with us today, but also many of Faleh's friends, Ahmed Abdul Hussein, Faris Kamal Nazmi, Faris Haram, Muhammad Al-Silawi, and other sort of activist researchers have all informed this piece over the years, and it's all been part of uh, uh, the, the making of this piece. And these researchers continue to move on with the legacy today and, and take what Faleh has taught them, including myself, uh, to try and analyze um, what was you know, going on. And we were all supposed to meet together in Beirut uh, this time last year, actually. Um, and Faleh wasn't able to make it, so we were all in Beirut, and he wasn't there, even though he lives in Beirut. And we said, well, this only Faleh could do something like this, which is we all come to see him, and he's not even in the city. Um, little did we know that it was actually because of an illness, because he would never admit when he was ill, but he had just suffered uh, a, a medical issue in Slimani and was unable to come back. Uh, but the, the group continues. The, the networks that he's formed will continue to pursue this kind of research. The biggest point of, of this piece, and really Faleh became one of the first ones to talk about this, even though I think it's become massively distorted in the, in the, in the elections that just happened, this idea of issue versus identity-based politics, right? This idea that from the summer of 2015, you have Shi'i in Basra protesting against their own Shi'i leadership. This moves on to Baghdad, where the Shia aren't protesting against Sunnis or aren't protesting against Kurds, but they're protesting against their own leaders. And this is one of the concepts that Faleh really wanted to bring up, and he, that's why he called it sort of issue-based politics, right? And, and, and you can see the impact of his work because it's a very common thing to say um, in policy circles in the U.S. or U.K. and elsewhere. Um, so, but it, it's kind of born out of the, these kind of conversations that happened. Um, more importantly, I think, for Faleh himself, given his background, it was this exciting rejection of political Islam or the Islamists that took over Iraq after 2003, right? And so he, he really focused on... on, on why, and, and, and he devotes a section to this, which is the sort of the failures of Shi'i political, uh, the politicization of Shi'i identity. And he goes all the way back to the 1920s and he tracks it onwards. Why in, in 1979 and 1991 and then in 2003, why the Shi'i were, have always been unable to politicize that identity? Right? But also what you see is the militarization of that identity um, after 2003. And he really, some of the things that he focuses on in this is, one, particularly after the passing of uh, Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr in 1999, really Shiism and, and, and political Islam became in the hands of these exile groups that would come in after 2003, the ones who we still talk about today. You have the Da'wah Party, you have Iski, and these are the groups that govern Iraq. They, 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 they had very little uh, connection to the street before 2003, and, and, and so some of the problems that Faleh saw with that was uh, that they had to rely m much more on sort of political Islam and what Faleh would talk about as the failures of that type of political Islam on the street. More importantly, I think, the conversation that he has in this is the conversation between how can you reconcile victimhood with rule, how can you be the victims and the world at the same time? And so after, some after a while, what Faleh discusses is since 2003, 
you know, to some extent, the electorate become a bit, you know, the, the maturation of the electorate begin to see that these guys are telling us we're all victims and there's this threat, yet they're all very wealthy and, and, and most of the population doesn't have much. So these are some of the ideas that come out based on these surveys and based on, on the research. This kind of what does Shia identity mean moving forward in Iraq vis-a-vis majoritarian rule, where the rulers of Iraq will also be Shia, right? What does that mean for this concept of victimhood, which has very much defined that space? So what you see in 2005, but then moving forward, is the increasing fragmentation of the Shia bloc. And I think that's very clear in, in, in the current elections when you see many different groups competing across the board. Um, but really, and also those traditional Shi'i groups really not doing that well, right? So Iski, for example, winning two seats, I think, is, is, is the biggest example of the utter failure of these Islamist parties, but also people would say the Da'wah party also um, you know, came third and, and, and fourth and fifth, but didn't come in the top two. So there is already that rejection. So that, all of that is present in this paper. And the reasons for why that is, based on the profiles and based on the research that, that Falih did um, on that. He also then turns to social movement theory, right? And he tries to look at the European examples, and he, and, and he also looks at different examples, including the Arab Spring example, and he focuses on the Arab Spring example. Why was Iraq in 2015 different than the Arab Spring in 2011? He concludes that fundamentally, the Arab Spring was to get rid of the, 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 the leader or the, or, or the political sort of elite, whereas what you have in Iraq is something more than that, right? It's to get rid of, the, it's to change the system. It's to change the muhasasa system, right? He doesn't quote al-mujarrab, al-mujarrab, but, uh, but he says effectively that line. This is a whole problem, this is a structural problem that needs to change. And I think that's why he wants to make this different to what was the Arab Spring, which is to topple the leaders. There's not one leader that you could topple in Iraq and to fix the system. And so he kind of focuses a lot on that. Then he comes out with these, these themes. You know, what, what is the protest movement based on? And sort of the four themes that he talks about, the first, he says, is Iraqi nationalism, right? And you see it with the presence of Iraqi flags, but also uh, a lot of mottos and slogans linked to Iraqi nationalism. And he says that fundamentally was one of the themes that may have united the many different groups um, that may have otherwise had ideological differences. A second one is anti-sectarianism, right? So increasingly what you see is this rejection of uh, the, the, the elite's ability to instrumentalize sect, either politically or militarily. And so anti-sectarianism becomes uh, a big part of the movement. Third is this talk about a civic state, right, about a civil state, a civic state, and it's based on already years and years of, of talk, particularly in the sort of the leftist Iraqi uh, sort of academic class, and some of the people who I mentioned earlier have been part of this movement, but it really, they're the ones who take on uh, this protest in July of 2015 and, and, and move forward with it. And then finally, it's this idea of plundering of funds, right, so that where did the money go? Iraq has a lot of money and the people have not seen the money, and so they're, to some extent they're demanding accountability. Because really what you have in places like Basra or Baghdad, or he doesn't mention Slemania, but the same could apply, is societies that haven't really experienced that kind of conflict or war or, or sectarianism for some time, so they're able to demand more from their leaders than just security or victimhood. And that's the focus. So some of the interesting, I think, um, 
results of the survey that come out. One is, I mean, Falih, one of his sort of methodologies was to always stress the sociological profiles of all the actors. You don't only talk high politics, but understand who is there and, 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 and where they come from. So most of, the, most of the protesters, and this is the 2015 kind of onward, we're not talking about when the Sudras sort of begin moving in, you know. Most of them have university degrees, right? So that's one of the, the things that was found. Uh, most, of them, most of them are also between the age of 20 and 29, right? So recent graduates from universities who most of them are also unemployed or have problems with, with, with economic problems, financial problems. But more interestingly, and these are some interesting things, most of them, a, lot, a huge majority of them are in the lowest income bracket. Um, most of them do not support Abadi. There's a question if you look, and it's do you support Abadi? Do you think Abadi is the one to fight corruption? They say they don't think so, right, out of the 3,000 respondents. And even more interestingly, there was a question that said, had you voted in the previous election, and in Baghdad, 82.5% said they had voted in the previous election, and in Basra, 80% said they had voted in the previous election. The research hasn't been done yet, but I would imagine that number has fallen dramatically given what happened from 2014 until today, and it kind of shows you the effect of the protest movement, which is what this, this research is on. Falih also focuses on the clergy and the role of the Shia religious clerics in the movement, right? It's very clear that in 2015 onward, Grand Ayatollah Ali Asistani became prominent, a prominent figure in demanding for reform and demanding for change. Many of his quotes uh, were taken to kind of support their movements, but also other clerics and other sort of places, people within the Marja'iyah and outside the Marja'iyah that start being part of the movement. So you have this religious uh, part of it. Um, and I sort of, it's, it's all based on the kind of work like, the, like the, 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 the topic you mentioned that we wrote on Maliki and the over-centralization of Maliki uh, when he, in his second term particularly, but it's like the utter failure of the political class in Iraq since 2003. Falih really enjoyed reading Kan'an Makia's book, um, The Rope, because what it was was no longer just blaming the Americans or blaming internationals for the problems in Iraq, but it was fundamentally a damning critique of the Iraqi leaders, all of them, for what they had done to their people. And this is a theme that I think Faleh took with him um, um, to the grave. But at the same time, he was Iraqi, so he did sort of, in his last days, have a sense of hope. And I think if he would have seen the election results, that sense of hope would have probably been lifted, given that Faleh was fundamentally one of the strongest proponents of uh, the Sajrus movement and, and, and seeing some of the merits of what someone like Muqtada Sadr and that movement could do. There was a huge debate within the movement, within particularly the leftist and civic movement, of whether to move with the Islamists, to move with the Sajrist or not. One of Faleh's last uh, Facebook exchanges is, is a debate that he engages with a, another scholar. His name is Faris Haram. And it's a debate over, you know, Faris is saying we shouldn't, you know, we need to be careful. And a lot of the civil movement thinks you need to be careful. You know, the Sajrists, they don't have an organization. Nobody knows where they're going. Every few years he changes his leaders. You can't trust this. Whereas Faleh had much more hope in that system, partly because in late 2015, Diyal Asadi came to him and said, how do we define technocracy and how do we sort of make it seem democratic when we're just trying to appoint uh, academics to become ministers? So Faleh 
not only was an activist, but also was a practitioner who was trying to change the system. And I think, really, to conclude, this paper is sort of not just his work from 2015 onward, but it's his life's work to try and raise awareness, to try and bridge the gap between the elite and the citizen in Iraq, and then finally to also use it to change narratives in the policy world, and I think he, he was one of the first to kind of change that narrative of identity versus issue-based politics. Thank you, Ned. That's excellent. John. Uh, thank you very much. Um, that was a very good summary of the, uh, what's an excellent, uh, excellent uh, book, so I hope you'll all uh, read or paper. Um, again, I share with many of you the grief that uh, Falester brought with it and the feeling that something was undone and, or left undone. But at the same time, I console myself with the fact that, as uh, has been mentioned already, he left a legacy of his works and thoughts and approaches, which I think will have resonance long beyond uh, his actual life. And in a sense, Fatma Massen said uh, words along those lines as well. So what I want to do this evening very briefly is just, on the one hand, think about uh, Fales' contribution uh, to think about Iraq, but also using Iraq, if you like, as a canvas uh, to depict movements, trends, processes that have a much wider significance, not just in the Middle East, but elsewhere as well, through the methods that he used um, and the focuses of his research. And secondly, uh, to <laughs> a personal note, to, um, uh, as it were, pay my homage to the tribute that I owe him uh, in the influence he's had on my own work, uh, which was significant. And as I think Renard mentioned, somebody who was so generous to uh, others studying the same subject. As you know, in academia, people often treat uh, subjects as their preserve, and um, uh, it's rather wonderful to find somebody with a generosity of spirit that actually welcomes people into working on the same fields that they work upon themselves. So I think that many of the things that, uh, certainly having read the paper and having had uh, Renard's um, summary of it, I think is an excellent introduction to some of the larger themes uh, of uh, far less work, although it's about a very specific time in Iraqi history uh, and a very particular set of phenomena, it does speak to something much larger as well. And I think that one of the interesting things that comes out of this, if one thinks that um, uh, here's Faleh, who became increasingly interested in Islamist movements, Islamism, Shia Islamism, particularly in Iraq as well, and I think one of the things that one sees throughout his work is that he's never claiming, as some people have often done, certainly people from a leftist background, that somehow Islamism is in itself a cover for something else. In other words, uh, he never makes that, <clears throat> I would regard, uh, mistake uh, of seeing it as a cover. He takes it seriously. But at the same time, of course, he's also alert to the kinds of things that uh, people try and get away with under the guise of re religiosity. And in a sense, many of the things are, are brought out by the people on the streets in Baghdad and Basra uh, as well. So I think there are two things that I want to just uh, highlight about his method and approach, which I find really significant. The first is what I call empathy and critique, in the sense that uh, he's somebody who I think could see uh, the power of moral certitude at a time of flux, uh, of disruption, of insecurity, and how this could be provided by religion. And I think, therefore, he took people's beliefs seriously. He didn't call them dupes. He didn't call them uh, uh, masses feeding on the opiate uh, of the people. Um, but he really, I think, 
and this in a sense was part of his sociological quest, he felt you needed to understand the depths of people's insecurity to understand what kind of responses they developed uh, in, as a result of it. Why, in other words, particular beliefs, particular communal identities come out of a situation in which people are desperate and uncertain uh, about the future. But at the same time, and this is why, in a sense, he never became a sentimentalist about uh, religion or moral certainty at times of flux, he was very well aware of the remorseless uh, secular logic in the workings of power. And by secular, I don't mean secularist, I mean secular in the sense of worldly. Um, and in many senses, despite the fact that it may be driven or colored by religious beliefs, power is determinedly secular. How you uh, uh, define ambition isn't a particularly religious uh, phenomenon. Uh, accumulation is certainly not necessarily religious. The organization of violence, uh, mass mobilization, these are all, in a sense, how do you organize people in this world? Uh, how do you intimidate these people in this world? How do you exploit people in this world? And I think he was always very well aware of that and of the political entrepreneurs uh, who, in many senses, made use of religion uh, to inject this with a moral purpose and also to avoid answerability, which I think comes out very well uh, in the paper as well. Um, and so for him, therefore, I think in some sense it was um, a much more convincing form of explanation to understand uh, what not simply religion had provided to ordinary people, uh, but what it had provided to those who want to take them for a ride, if you like, as well. And far more persuasive than many of the culturalist explanations which we've had our fill of uh, since 2003 and before uh, about, uh, about the politics and the pattern of politics in Iraq. So trying to work out effectively and taking this seriously, um, what, how do people see themselves? Why do they see themselves in that way? How do they see their interests in that way? Why do they look at their leaders in that way at that particular moment and how this changes over time? Um, and the contradictions that are often within it. So it required him, and I think he did this very skillfully throughout many of his publications, uh, to decipher the mentalities uh, that made social and political action meaningful uh, and seeing the world, if you like, through the eyes of the political actors themselves, empathizing but not sympathizing. So in a sense, that's where the harder edge of the critique uh, comes in. And in that sense, Farleh always, it seemed to me, um, gave people the dignity of agency. He did not take it away from them. He didn't say that they were dupes. He didn't say that they were um, uh, the, the victims of some impersonal set of structural forces. But he really tried to think, why did they make the choices they did, even if they were disastrous uh, at particular moments in one form or another? So he provided, I think, very many senses, uh, an empathetic understanding of how people saw and acted upon opportunities, whilst at the same time retaining a dispassionate views of the ideas and ideologies that drove them forward. And so it, this mixture of, as it were, empathy and hard-edged critique has always struck me as being a key part of, of Farley's work. And the other was the approach that he called conjunctural, um, which is not an, uh, an easy term and rather an awkward word, but what it basically meant was, of course, why do things, how do things come together in such a way that they begin to shape a new reality? Uh, not that they are uh, uh, acting according to, uh, um, if you like, uh, iron laws of history, but the contingency of events and developments that bring things together and shape people in some form or another. So he was looking at what I call the conjunctural in the patterns of Iraqi politics, uh, the forces that have shaped Iraqi society, the political imaginations of Iraqis, 
none of these, he said, were unique to Iraq, and he was quite right. Uh, capitalist transformation, um, the logic of the modern state, the nationalist imaginary, these are things that are the product of this world uh, that we all live in, and uh, we all respond to them in one form or another. But what he was looking at was why does this particular conjuncture uh, uh, produce the responses that it did in, in Iraq itself? How did they work upon existing forces in Iraqi politics and society, and how did they create new ways of living uh, and interacting? And in this sense, of course, he was uh, developing a, 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 a profound and I think a very important understanding of history, that history works for different people at different rates. So again, not trying to impose some ineluctable historical determinism upon, uh, upon people, but trying to see how is it that different people's histories are so mismatched with others that it produces political and social conflict. So I think that those, that, those two aspects of the approaches of Faleh are things that we owe him for, not just for the understanding of Iraq, but also for, uh, for um, um, understanding of politics and history more generally, which, had he uh, had the time to do it, I think he would have developed beyond the Iraqi canvas uh, that I described. Briefly, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, is just to say the, the debt that I owe Faleh, I think, is in two areas of my own work, and I would certainly uh, like to just briefly make a tribute to that. One is, of course, on uh, Iraq itself. That is the... Um, the ways in which Faleh brought out something that I found extraordinarily important to be reminded of uh, and uh, to be told how it worked in some ways, which is that the categories that people use commonly and that many Iraqis use to describe themselves and to describe others, the categories of political identification are themselves battlegrounds. They're not, in other words, static categories of description. And to try and understand what kind of battleground they are uh, is, in a sense, one of the things that I owe to, uh, to, to Faleh. Because one of the uh, arguments he makes, I think, when you're looking at how he uh, examines uh, Shia politics, when he's looking at tribal politics, when he's looking at Kurdish politics or Arab nationalist uh, politics as well, is that um, the institutional landscape created uh, by or which in, embody and sometimes enforce these markers of identity and difference become themselves objects of competition. And therefore, in a sense, what one's always looking at is the very struggle and competition that's going on within those categories to appropriate them, to use them, uh, to ensure that they become hegemonic in some form or another. So in many senses, he uses this very effectively, I think, to undermine not just simply essentialism of categories, but actually question the way in which those categories have been used uh, for the analysis of Iraqi politics. Because what he argues is that the, uh, if you like, the, the designation of the category of tribe or Shi'i or uh, Sunni or whatever it happens to be uh, as an object of, is an object of study uh, and a field of political conflict. It cannot, therefore, also be used to explain that political conflict. It becomes, in a sense, uh, the terrain that you should look at uh, for the understanding of it. And that applied certainly to his um, uh, meticulous study of intra-Shi'i politics, but also uh, Kurdish, Arab, tribal, and other identity categories in one form or another. So I think for, for uh, anyone working on uh, Iraq and certainly uh, the ways in which uh, Iraq has been described elsewhere, to have that constantly subversive notion of the deconstruction of the category, that what you're looking at in a category is actually 
a political struggle. And then you've just started to ask the really interesting questions, why the struggle and the form it takes. And I think that the, the, the paper that uh, you have before you is, in a sense, a very good example of that cataloging, if you like, of the conflict about what does it mean to be Shia in Iraq? And who is to say what it means to be Shia in Iraq? And by what right? And by what means? And in a sense, uh, ensuring it. The other uh, 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 tribute that I, I must pay to him was when I was working on uh, my uh, work on Islamic responses to capitalism, are two quite brief uh, books in Arabic by uh, Falah. Uh, one on uh, materialism and religious thought, uh, and one on uh, religious consciousness and capitalist development. Um, and although they're briefly done, what strikes me as uh, extraordinarily important about them is the way in which he brought out these ideas, these distinctively self-consciously Islamic formulations by Muslim intellectuals on how to deal with the modern world, how to deal with the capitalist world, uh, in ways that were distinctive, clearly, but had a huge amount in common with how other non-Muslim uh, peoples have dealt with the same phenomenon. So when he looked at the works of uh, Ayatollah Mohammed Shirazi or Ayatollah Mohammed Bakr al-Sadr, um, he took their ideas seriously. He didn't say they were mistaken. or He tried to think what was it that they were trying to formulate in response to a world that was being transformed without their agency. Uh, and in that sense, uh, it comes back to the question of the, uh, the empathy that he shows elsewhere in his writings, a sense of much larger forces at work, in other words, that demanded responses, uh, both ethical and practical, and empathy that really tried to say, how did these people, these leading clerics, answer what some people would argue is the most fundamental question of human existence? How should we live? How should we live as Muslims, but how should we live? Faced by um, uh, a world transformed by capital, uh, by, dominated by the market, shot through with uh, commodity fetishism, uh, subject to the alienating conditions of labor uh, and the ethic of individual self-interest. And when he looked at their writings, he looked at these were serious attempts. He didn't sympathize with their, their aims, their values were very different from his own, but he, it was an object lesson in how to understand how people in very differently situated ethical universes are still trying to face up to the same problems that many of the people you have sympathy with do face up to. And I think that was an extraordinarily powerful lesson when I was trying to uh, understand how Islamic responses to capitalism emerged, uh, to see and to be reminded of that through far less writing on this. Thank you, Chelsea. Denise? Um. I feel particularly honored to be among you today because unlike my colleagues here, I'm no expert on Iraq. This gives me, however, the opportunity to speak on behalf of those of us with an interest in the Middle East and who have been following the developments in Iraq from afar. We owe Faleh Jabbar a huge debt of gratitude for having educated us with his deep knowledge always delivered with charm and humor. When I first met Faleh, he was still a PhD student at Birkbeck working with Sami Zubaida. We kept in touch through the Middle East Study Group, which is an informal gathering of scholars, journalists, and activists working broadly on the Middle East. I recall vividly how painful some of our deliberations became after the 2003 US invasion of Iraq as colleagues were torn between the relief of seeing that Saddam regime deposed and the near certainty 
that following the deep decay of the Iraqi state, already well underway during the sanctions period and before, this would be the coup de grace. Having worked in Afghanistan between 2002 and 2004 and witnessed a world of conflict entrepreneurs working hand in glove with invading powers, I was deeply cynical about the effects of donor-led post-conflict reconstructions and the types of political settlement they gave rise to, which in the case of Iraq gave us the ethno-sectarian quota system, the muhassasa, that Fale so rightly condemned. Nonetheless, I felt that Fale always kept faith with Iraqi society and its potentials. And I think that, to me, this is the feeling that comes through this paper very powerfully. You know, apart from the scholarship, there is also a, a deep hope that animates his work. I last met Fale some years ago in Beirut, never imagining this would be the last time. For someone like me who is semi-literate when it comes to Iraq, interactions with Fale were an education in themselves, and there are numerous others like me on whose behalf I speak. Fale represented engaged scholarship at its best, with scholarship and engagement shining through everything he did in equal measure. Fale did not think there was any inevitability to the politicization and subsequent militarization of Shia identities in Iraq. On the contrary, he believed that these were the products of noxious conjunctures that could be overturned by the will of the Iraqi people, demanding, in his own words, a radically transformed, reformed political system. Fale was searching for a political opening an opening that could offer hope for a civil state free of kleptocracy, corruption, politicized religion. In that sense, he must have felt thoroughly vindicated by the protest movements that erupted across Iraq in 2005, starting with the summer protests in Basra. After reading his paper, I was left with numerous questions that I would have liked to discuss with Fale if he were here. I shall instead have to share them with you. These questions arise not only in relation to Iraq, but in the broader context of the Arab uprisings of 2011 and their aftermath. As Charles Tripp eloquently argued in his book, The Power and the People, myriad forms of political resistance throughout the Middle East and North Africa have given voice to civic aspirations for inclusion, justice, and dignity, often deploying similar or identical slogans. The key questions to me is, under what conditions do protests give rise to social movements that may have enough leverage to unsettle existing power configurations and achieve tangible outcomes in terms of governance? Looking at the aftermath of the Arab uprisings, one may conclude with regret that protests created a wedge that was capitalized upon by some already powerful actors on the ground, most evidently in the case of Egypt, where the Tahrir Square's revolutionaries have now become, as you know, an object of persecution. In the case of Iraq, what I ask myself is, 
What are the endogenous forces, groups or institutions that could actually convert this groundswell of citizen protest into actual political power? One thing is amply clear. The forces in civil society that Fale would have wished to see in power have few or no means of political representation. And I would go as far as arguing that this is the case throughout the region after long decades of persecution and marginalization of progressive forces under authoritarian regimes, often leaving only Islamist actors of various stripes standing in a severely impoverished political field. This inevitably points us to a politics of alliances with actors who might themselves have been mired in sectarian violence, but hopefully represent a rupture in the majoritarian Shiite bloc, with Sadrists now appearing, willing to ride on popular demands to rid the polity of corruption and politicized religion. What are the implications for the future? Fale. <laughs> uh, I think I will conclude by pointing at the types of tensions, paradoxes, and compromises involved by briefly reflecting on the composition of the women candidates of the Cyrene bloc, because I work in the field of women's rights and feel on surer terrain there. On the one hand, we see genuine political leaders such as Majeda al-Tamimi elected in Baghdad with more votes than the Prime Minister Abadi, uh, which is remarkable, whose feminist credentials are well established as someone who fiercely opposed the so-called Jafari law and its basis in, conf in confessionalism. Likewise, the election of Haifa al-Amin, a well-known activist and rights defender in the conservative province of Dikar is remarkable. On the other hand, the vast majority of the women of the Cyrene list are conservative Sadrists whose agendas may not feature women's rights, demilitarization, or individual freedoms. Given the overall configuration of political parties, it would be relatively easy to predict that women's rights will be the first item to be negotiated away. What else? how to re-engage with an alienated Sunni minority and include them in the political process. What of Kurds and their fractured political class that is equally alienating to the masses they are supposed to govern? These are the questions that I was left with. I am sure Fale would have listened to my questions patiently and attentively. I can only hope that he might have concluded I had become a good enough student. Thank you. Now we'll end the, um, the formal part of this uh, evening's memorial by playing a, a short video. Thanks. Thank <laughs> you.
I first met Falah in the early 1990s. We were he was introduced to me uh, and highly recommended by Peter and Marion Sluglet, uh, dear friends and colleagues of long standing, with a view to for him to start a PhD at uh, at Birkbeck, which I readily agreed. Uh, I took an immediate liking to Falah, his personal charm and humor and his depth of knowledge, culture and intellect. Because I was with him on the 19th of March 2016 when we met a very, very senior Iraqi politician who scared me witless because of his reputation and indeed uh, his attitude to something I'd written about him. And Farah, without fear or favour, walked up to him at the end of the meeting, shook his hand and then launched a very polite and very precise critique of what that man had done in office and the negative consequences it had for both of their country. Dr. Falih was my spiritual figure and my great mentor. For me, his loss is uh, as a person is, is a personal loss, uh, given the commitment, committed friendship and generous support he gave me throughout the 10 years I knew him. Falih, always there is the, no the hidden novelist. It's inside his book is Falah. Always he depend on text from Dostoevsky, from different writers, from Shakespeare sometimes, just to put it. And when he read Al-Wardi, he used to pick the story from his book and tell the story, I mean, read the story to me. And always he depend on the story to, and he admired uh, Al-Wardi as a storyteller beside his uh, research. His very last post on Facebook, I think, sheds light into the legacy that he wants to leave. There was a debate emerging linked to this sort of the protest movement, and a debate emerging linked to can the civic movement and the Sudjurists come together? Can the Islamists and the secular, nationalist seculars come together? And of course, we know that Dr. Falih was someone who really believed in this cause, and many questioned him for this cause, but he stayed committed to it because he saw Middle East not today, but he saw Middle East in the future, when these are two forces that need to somehow come together. Hashid now developed into a military political grouping that now is running for elections in one electoral bloc. This electoral bloc uh, includes 19 of the Hashid formations. And as such, they are pro-Iran, they are for uh, Shi'i majoritarian rule, they are for a heavy-handed kind of uh, uh, treatment or confrontation with the protest movement, they are for intervention in Syria to support Assad, they are for uh, kicking out the Americans. Uh, their alliance with Abadi that was announced yesterday, it seems to have fallen apart today. They have withdrawn from that uh, alliance. If this report is correct, that means the Iran's attempt to hegemonize the next government has failed. And that's, a good, that's good news for the centrist, future centrist line that uh, many people um, wish to, to see in Iraq. Thank you very much. Here ends the, the formal uh, part of this, night, this evening's tribute.
But I think in the spirit of the man whose life we're celebrating, there's uh, refreshments at the back of the hall and we can carry on talking and discussing his legacy with a, a glass of wine or a glass of um, water in our hands. So thank you all for coming and thank you for that excellent film and thank you for the three excellent contributors. Thank you very much. <laughs>